It is genuinely a challenging conversation to have, and it's not lost on me the irony of myself. As I look back on my own drinking in my 20s, and I wouldn't have been adhering to WHO standards and, and guidelines at all at all. So, you know, it's not about taking a moral perspective into it. It's just about looking at it dispassionately as a doctor and sort of say, what does the evidence tell us would be helpful as a society? Hello, I'm Professor Patrick Murray, and I'm delighted to host this third series of the UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA, the Medical Graduates Association. But for those who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you, our School of Medicine graduates in touch with fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. As a global and diverse School of Medicine, UCD naturally has been greatly enriched by attracting highly talented clinical academics who graduated from other Irish or international medical schools. They are now highly valued members of our UCD community and you will hear from them too. The MGA is your organization offering you a lifelong partnership with UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, graduates will take us on a trip down memory lane when describing their time at UCD, and on some occasions in other schools of medicine, along with their experiences as junior doctors. They will discuss their clinical and scientific specialty areas, highlights of the challenges that they encountered during their careers, and tell us how they now share their expertise and coach others. On a personal level, they will discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance, I will share books, films, and music for us to enjoy, and holiday locations to think about. Our interviewees have compelling stories to share, that will spark your curiosity about life in general and the clinical specialty they've chosen in particular. I'm Pat Murray, Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at University College Dublin and a consultant physician at the Mater Misericordiae University Hospital, also in Dublin, Ireland. I'm a UCD School of Medicine alumnus from 1988. Following an internship at the Mater Hospital, I completed a residency in internal medicine in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the US. I completed fellowship training programs in nephrology, critical care medicine and clinical pharmacology at the University of Chicago Hospitals in Chicago, Illinois, also in the US. And I was a faculty member there until I returned to UCD in the matter as the inaugural professor of clinical pharmacology in the School of Medicine in 2008. In 2011, I was appointed Associate Dean for International Affairs at the UCD School of Medicine. I subsequently became Dean and Head of School of Medicine from December 2012 through June 2018. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Bobby Smith, who graduated from UCD Medicine in 1991. Bobby is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist who has acted as clinical lead across three adolescent addiction services in Dublin since 2003. He is a clinical professor in the Department of Public Health and Primary Care in Trinity College, Dublin. He has published over 80 scientific papers in the field of addiction, and his PhD thesis examines strategies to reduce the harms arising from substance abuse by youth. He is a member of the National Oversight Committee, which monitors implementation of the National Drug Strategy in Ireland, and he is Vice Chair of Alcohol Action Ireland. Welcome to the podcast today, Bobby. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. Privileged to be asked. Just to start things off, I'd like to ask you about the beginning of all this, uh, choosing medicine. When did you decide to become a doctor and how did it come about? To be honest with you, Patrick, it was very much a last minute decision. It had always been in the background as an option, but I was... You know, more focused on engineering probably till almost the last minute to let you know how late it was. You know, there's a change of mind slip and and it was a phone conversation with my mum literally the day before the closing date decided, okay, I'll switch, you know, let's go for medicine. Uh, So they had to drive from Longford down to where I was down in Wexford 
to get me to sign the form to then drive to Galway in the midst of a thunderstorm to get the change of mind slip in on time to switch me from engineering to, to medicine. So it was a close run thing. Well, that's, so. a, that's a committed pair of parents there. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Were you kind of slanted towards, you know, physics and applied maths and all that stuff in the leaving? Yeah, and that was probably what was drawing me towards engineering. My leaving cert was very much weighted. I I did all three sciences. I did maths, applied maths, and they were my strong subjects. So engineering would have perhaps been easier during college because, uh, you know, the the course during medicine, I suppose, required an awful lot of memory and sort of learning stuff just off rather than simply understanding core principles and then applying them. And in terms of that last minute decision, what tipped the balance one way or the other? I suppose part of it was was maybe looking uh, at engineering and and who else was going to do engineering and the few engineers I'd met and, and versus the doctors I suppose I'd met. We'll, we'll get back to Earls for Terrace and the fact you ended up with the engineers anyway. Indeed, yeah, couldn't escape them. What, what do you remember before that about uh, the preclinical years? And, and I presume you started off in Belfield, did you? We did science, the general sciences, uh, chemistry, physics, biology here in, in Belfield just for one year. I'd, I'd done all three subjects to leave insert, so I found that year academically pretty easy. So it was a nice introduction to, to college, I suppose, in that way. And then, obviously, first med, which was second year, we moved out to Earlsford Terrace. So that was a, it was a bigger change. So in your, in your year in Belfield, did you, did you join the societies and that kind of thing, or what did you do? I suppose I had a go at rugby. Uh, I had played rugby at school and decided to try out with UCD here, but, you know, I was... Uh, I wasn't playing at high enough of a standard to get on a, on a good team, and that was sort of frustrating because, I don't know, the teams I was on, people weren't showing up for training, our matches would be cancelled, and, and I gave up probably after a few months. I joined the Karate Society. I haven't never done it before just to do something a bit different and work my way through a couple of belts. So um, i still probably a yellow belt in karate all these years later, perhaps. And then you, you moved into the terrace. What are your, what are your memories at the time in, in Earlswood Terrace? It was an old building. It was a real characterful place. It probably helped me get a, a bigger connection, actually, with my own classmates. You know, what I found maybe in, in first year is that I was still gravitating towards friends from school, friends in, in doing law, who were doing commerce, who were doing arts, who were doing engineering. By throwing us all in together in Earlsford Terrace, I, I suppose I, I got embedded in more with the class than I had done in, in first year, which was good. And then there's these new subjects. You got a real sense of, of, of seeing how this was leading towards a career in medicine. We start doing anatomy and so on. And was there any, any particular preclinical subject that you struck a chord with you? I do remember anatomy, but I remember sort of disliking anatomy uh, in lots of ways, but with Prof Coakley uh, as, a, as a teacher, and he was great in terms of making a, a challenging subject, for me certainly, a little bit more interesting and engaging. And then uh, as you finished up in the, in the terrace and then went out into the, the hospitals. Where, where were you attached primarily? You know, as we began to do a little bit of clinical work, we did a little bit of time in each hospital, both Vincent's and the Mater. And even though I was living in, in Milltown and it made more sense, I suppose, to go to Vincent's, a lot of the guys I was closest to in, in, in our year uh, were going to the Mater, so I opted to go there and just cycled across the city. Did your primary medicine and surgery rotations, where did you do your obstetrics? I did obstetrics in Hollis Street, so Colm O'Hurley, I'd certainly remember. You know, again, he's one of these teachers, I suppose you recall, who has a real passion for teaching and a real interest in the students. Uh, but it was almost, uh, I remember feeling a bit 
bad about it because his his enthusiasm for teaching sort of exceeded my enthusiasm for learning, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, I wasn't madly into obstetrics as a subject. I just viewed it as an obstacle I had to get through to, to, to pass. But uh, he was also a very keen teacher. I always appreciated that. And I, I realise he knew everybody's name, but did he, did he know your name particularly? Or did, you, did you make an impression with your, your lack of enthusiasm for obstetrics? Uh, I remember I, I, was, I was in the States that summer and arrived back a few days later. I thought sure no, one had, no one had noticed or care, but he noticed. I do remember that, uh, getting in a little bit of trouble. I think I was called into his office to explain myself, which uh, struck me at the time as, as not typical of the degree of monitoring I'd encountered from uh, my other supervisors, but he was dead right. Of some importance then, uh, psychiatry, where did you do that? Yeah, psychiatry, the main placement was was Vincent's Fairview. And, you know, th- there was a consultant there who led the teaching, whose name escapes me, but again, she was great. Uh, she was really enthusiastic, but in this case, actually, I, was, I, I sort of was interested in the subject, so I do remember that placement been a, a good one and an engaging one. Was it Dorothy Keelan, perhaps? Yeah, she was great. It was almost the first time in the subject that really, it sort of half captured me uh, of the various placements I'd had uh, along the way. Would you credit that as the, your initial interests being stirred in psychiatry at, at yeah, that time? Definitely, yeah. I would probably, you know, even before going into medicine, might have had some interest in psychology and why people do the odd things that they do. But uh, certainly that clinical placement was, was, I think, influential. Other than uh, Dr. Keelan, anyone else in the clinical years that made an impression on you? Obviously, uh, Professor Hurley did as well. Anybody else you you remember Uh, particularly? It's the two sort of lecturers within both Vincent's and the matter, Enda McDermott, even though I didn't go to to, to Vincent's uh, for my ongoing training, you know, his tutorials, which were the initial introduction, I suppose, to clinical medicine, I recall, and and it was Dennis Cusack had the lead for for guiding students, I suppose, in, in the matter. So the two of them are actually the, the two sort of teachers I remember almost more so than the, than the various consultants I would have encountered on rotations and placements as a student, certainly. So then uh, we got through the years and uh, I suppose uh, you probably remember something about your graduation ceremony, do you? I remember my parents came along to it, but they had maybe got a bit of a, a, a mix up in their diary and they were flying out on holidays that evening. So uh, I remember sort of being here having graduated, doing a quick photo with them afterwards, and then they had to race off. So I was uh, then a little bit lost for, for half an hour or so. But, you know, I, I think I managed to piggyback one of my classmates' uh, family do uh, and joined into that for the evening. Your, your parents had earned their credit with the CAO. Indeed. After they had, of course, yeah, they haven't raced across the country. They felt they'd, they'd done their bit and seen me to the end of the, the medical degree. I think they were probably relieved I, I got to the end of it and, and completed it. So then uh, for your internship, where did you? I interned in the matter. And that was a tough year. Both medicine and surgery. Yeah. So I did six months surgery initially, started off in cardiothoracic medicine, or cardiothoracic surgery, sorry, with, with Freddie Woods. Should have been, I suppose, a fascinating place to, to be cutting your teeth as a very, very junior doctor. And certainly it was a good team to work with. But I suppose, again, I didn't have any great interest in, in surgery. Certainly that was, you know, to be working on a team that was doing heart transplants and so on really was... I suppose, uh, uh, amazing in terms of seeing cutting-edge medicine in practice by people who aren't, I suppose, just national leaders but had international reputations. 
And so uh, after the surgery, then you did medicine there too? After surgery, I did medicine. I, I did, I think, a three-month stint with uh, John Crow in gastroenterology and then actually did a few months dermatology. And once again, it was, uh, you know, within the hospital setting and the medical arena, oddly enough, dermatology was the, the one specialty that I, again, I had an interest in. Uh, I think it was Sean O'Loughlin I worked with there. And just, again, found that placement engaging and I got sort of invested in it and enthusiastic about it and definitely contemplated uh, if I was going to stay in, 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 in medicine, you know, I was going to do my, my medical membership and look at dermatology as a potential career. As it got towards the end of the year then, did you, how did you decide what to do next? I suppose I spoke to some people who were a few years ahead of me in psychiatry. I became more committed, I suppose, to, to psychiatry as, as the career pathway I wanted to go down. Decided John O'God's was very much the, the, the place to, to obtain my training uh, and then sort of made job selection beyond that point about trying to maximise my chances of getting on their training programme, which actually took took me a year. So you, you had to select a, an SHO position somewhere? Fortuitously, I suppose, given where my career has gone since, I did six months in the, in the drug treatment centre uh, on Pierce Street. And I did six months actually in the National Medical Rehabilitation Hospital out in Dunleary. Both jobs with a view to sort of, you know, furthering my competencies in, in psychiatry, neurology, that been a pathway into St. John of God's. But that exposure, I suppose, to addiction treatment in, in Trinity Court, which only happened because I wanted, to, I was using it in order to get into to John of God's, established a, sort of a connection, I suppose, with the area of addiction, and again established a bit of an interest in an area of research that grew incrementally over the following decade, I suppose. And you, you probably, uh, as you said, got a good exposure to mental health uh, issues in, in the, both places you worked. Yeah. Even though you weren't on a scheme yet. Even though it wasn't on a scheme, yeah. Certainly in the drug treatment centre, you know, I suppose that was seen as a psychiatry job. The, the job in the rehab certainly wasn't, but I suppose that was more a really solid grounding in neurology. And I guess if I, given what I know now about mental health and so on and the pretty devastating injuries that people would have experienced there, there probably was uh, a lot of mental health issues that, sort of would have gone a bit over my head amongst that particular patient group at that time. And you got on the scheme then the following year, did you? Yeah, so then I, I was successful in getting on to the John O'God scheme. So that would have been, I suppose, the start of 90, or the middle of 93. Um, so that's then where I remained and that's where I did my uh, basic specialist training, as it's now called, so I did the psychiatry membership. Which again was a bit of a struggle, you know. You know, I, I do sort of feel I underperformed maybe in college. I didn't, I didn't work as hard as I should have, but I always passed exams, uh, and would have had a sort of a, a belief that I should pass exams if you, uh, and just had this expectation that I would. So failing uh, my psychiatry membership as I did the first two times, uh, part one was a really jolting experience particularly the second time the first time I knew okay I wasn't taking it seriously enough but the second time I thought I'd worked so it was really it came as a real affront to my sense of of being an academic and intelligent that I wasn't deemed good enough I hadn't made the grade so I had to do it a third time and I got it the third time I mean obviously circumstances every exam is different but uh, what do you think helped you succeed the, the third time what did you learn from the previous 
couple of attempts? I suppose, you know, I had taken my approach to college exams, unfortunately, into my professional exams, which meant sort of cutting things as close to the line as I, as I could. And, uh, and I realised the third time, no, there's, there's no wiggle room here. You, you can't be leaving stuff out. You've got to go 100% really at all sections of the course uh, if you're going to make the grade at a professional level. You know, I had been uh, looking for shortcuts, I think, uh, prior to that. You, you can't uh, be predicting which poet's going to come up this year. No, no. that would have been an art form that was well developed uh, in, in the preceding years. So then uh, how did you decide your next step or when, when you finished the scheme? Again, uh, one of the placements I had, uh, so I worked with Kate Cantor uh, in the Lucina Clinic in child psychiatry and really enjoyed it. I was beginning to maybe get a little bit frustrated with adult psychiatry. It seemed a little bit two-dimensional to me in some ways. It was very focused on just diagnosing symptoms and and commencing medications and treatments now. And I I liked child psychiatry. It seemed more sort of three-dimensional and in motion because you were looking at a, a child's developmental journey to help you understand what particular problem they were facing now and then also looking at the system around the child as in the family uh, and community and so on uh, that might inform or explain the difficulties they're experiencing but also the the begin began to give you clues about where the treatment plan and the solutions were going to lie that sort of just clicked with me it seemed way more interesting that than adult psychiatry so it was during that sort of basic specialist training i decided I wanted to move towards child psychiatry. I had retained that interest in addiction research. Couldn't figure out any way that I was going to join up those two quite separate strands to my area of interest because there was no such thing as adolescent addiction psychiatry at that point in time. So what did you do? So I decided I wanted to do child psychiatry. I was looking at the higher specialist training program in Ireland and I was looking at, and there seemed to be, you know, there was, the people were waiting three years post-membership to get on to the training scheme in Ireland. And I thought, well, sure, I, I, I'd be qualified in three years by the time I started, if I go abroad. So I had no particular enthusiasm for, for, for going abroad to train, but I decided to go to, to the UK. So I went to, to Liverpool, uh, to Merseyside, and joined their higher specialist training scheme, partly thinking I was going to, once I'd start there for a few months, or do one six-month or 12-month placement there, I'd slot back into the Irish training scheme. Um, and it, it just didn't, it didn't work out that way. So I completed my higher specialist training in Merseyside in child psychiatry. And, and what did you do after that? So after that, I had to then make a decision, I suppose, about being a consultant. Uh, I did consider briefly looking at Brisbane in Australia. I had some contact with the child psychiatry service in their matter hospital. I was uh, in a relationship with my now wife at, at that particular point in time. She was very much committed to staying in Ireland, so that re- so I had to <laughs> decide to, to go for the consultant job in Ireland. Obviously, stepping into a new job, this... As, as the, the first consultant, you, you probably had to focus on clinical service for a little bit then, did you? Yeah, the big challenge back in 2003 in this new job was, one, just finding my feet in adolescent addiction because I hadn't actually worked in adolescent addiction particularly before. There, there, was, there was no tradition of adolescent addiction services uh, that were consultant-led really in Britain or Ireland prior to that point in time. So you were sort of uh, winging it to some extent. 
trying to apply the knowledge I would have obtained as a child psychiatrist, particularly maybe in areas like eat, working with young people with eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, I found that that sort of model translates reasonably well, oddly enough, to working with young people with addiction issues. So do you spend your time clinically around the city in different clinics and different inpatient uh, settings? It's 98% outpatient. So it's very little. I I don't really have, I don't have inpatients anywhere. Uh, Back at the very, very beginning, I used to admit the odd person to, to Kundara for an opiate detox, but heroin has vanished as a problem in the adolescent age range. So it's really outpatient-based services dealing with the common problems now are cannabis, number one, by a mile, and number two is alcohol, number three is probably cocaine. So it's talking-based therapies, uh, interventions delivered in community settings, a service that still operates out of Cherry Orchard, another one main base in Tala, and then in the last couple of years we began to operate out of Klonski Hospital as well, a service covering more the East Coast area. But we have a small multidisciplinary team, and I suppose certainly say for the East Coast service, a big challenge is we extend down into Wicklow. So we you know, can't expect kids from Arklow to travel all the way up to Klonski, so we work out of primary care centres, or really any building we can get access to, uh, to meet with the young people who are accessing the service and their families. Before we get into some more personal stuff about your life outside of work, uh, I think it's a good place to talk about some of the, the topical issues about substance abuse and, uh, and younger people, because there's a lot in the news right now. Maybe to start off with, I suppose there, there's been a certainly a push to try and look at alcohol in Ireland differently. Um, it's a push that gets a fair bit of resistance, I think, even in talking about young people. Yeah, um, it's a conversation I suppose I've inserted myself into probably over the last 12 or 14 years, largely because uh, of the job. And I have this connection now with, with Alcohol Action Ireland. I'm, I'm on the board there for about the last decade or so. It is genuinely a challenging conversation to have. And it's not lost on me the irony of myself. And, and because I look back on my own drinking in my 20s and I wouldn't have been adhering to WHO standards and, and guidelines at all at all. So, you know, it's not about taking a moral perspective into it. It's just about looking at it dispassionately as a doctor and sort of say, what does the evidence tell us would be helpful as a society in terms of reducing the the pretty staggering levels of harm that, that alcohol causes, not just in terms of alcohol dependence, but, you know, an awful lot of accidents and injuries that are suffered that result in people attending emergency departments. And sometimes with fatal outcomes, alcohol is at the background. So... It makes sense that as a society we would look at this and decide if we can manage our relationship with alcohol a little bit better than we have been. And, and to be honest with you, Pat, I do take some encouragement from some of the signs and, and changes that have happened in the last 20 years. I do think there's a growing minority of young people who have gotten the message about the health risks associated with alcohol and there's a growing minority who are choosing not to drink at all or to drink very little. There's still, though, of course, a subset who do drink and they drink the same way I suppose Irish young people have always tended to do, which is to drink to get drunk. You know, again, it's important not to look like you're hopping on a moral high ground on this issue because, again, as, as I've said, I'm in no position to do so. But I was listening to the radio this morning and, you know, there was a piece about the people were asked to, to phone in or message in about their 
the craziest thing they had come home with after a night out. And there were all sorts of stories about people stealing rose bushes from neighbours' gardens and planting them in their own garden or stealing items of clothing from uh, clotheslines and so on. And this is all greeted with great hilarity. But ultimately, you know, and you could argue no one was harmed massively from these minor incidents of minor theft and minor public disorder. But we can't sort of continue to laugh about and celebrate that th- those particular events, then without ignoring the fact that that sometimes they go a little bit too far, and sometimes people do get badly injured and hurt in the exact same type of escapade. And, it, and it's obviously not also just in, in, in particularly young people. I mean, a lot of a lot of the the bad incidents in society are dri- alcohol driven as well. Yeah, completely across all sectors of society. I mean, you know, young people haven't sort of like they're off a rock or whatever. It's the adults of Ireland have set an example, which it was one that, that indicates that getting drunk is entirely socially acceptable, if not expected. You're almost, you can get harangued and harassed uh, almost if you're choosing not to drink or not drinking enough. That's sort of the way it used to be. I, and, and I do think it can be, sometimes be like that. But I, as I said, I, I think some of those styles of drinking are changing a little bit. So aside from you know more positively changing young people's approach to picking other things to do with their with their time and and modify their drinking, do you think anything else is needed in terms of some of the talk about legislation on you know minimum pricing and all that kind of stuff? Do you think that's useful? I drink myself, Pat, uh, and the inconvenient truth for those of us who do drink is that you know the evidence is really crystal clear. Uh, the more available alcohol is, the more harm you have. The cheaper alcohol is, the more harm you have, and the more promotion. Uh, of alcohol uh, that you emit in your society, the more harm you have. So these are the levers of influence that public health says we we need to address. So that means pushing up costs and minimum unit pricing is one way of doing that. Increasing duty on alcohol is another way of doing that. Um, That's hardly been touched. Alcohol is actually the same price now. I don't mean in inflation-adjusted terms. It's actually the same price now in in an off-license or in a supermarket as it was 20 years ago. You know, so it's not ridiculous to think that maybe duty needs to increase another little bit and, and to keep pace with inflation and to reduce availability. There are not many votes in uh, raising the price of no, alcohol. No, no, you've got to be brave as a politician, I suppose, to pursue that path. But, you know, we've seen politicians take chances and, and be brave in, in public health arenas in the past. You think of Michal Martin and what he did in terms of the smoking ban in the workplace and people thought that wasn't going to work and there was a lot of ambivalence in society about you know getting smoking out of pubs but now everyone thinks it's brilliant so I don't know particularly advertising and, and sports sponsorship kills me like that we tolerate that and, and allowing alcohol sponsored a sports played by young men in spite of the fact we know that alcohol is the number one modifiable risk factor for the premature deaths that we see in young men. Certainly gu- guilty of going to Champions Cup matches, but I won't mention the sponsor. Yeah, I do my best not to mention the sponsor as well. Uh, but it is hard, isn't it? And that's the brilliance of advertising. And then alcohol in Ireland is also used as one of those kind of positive controls or negative controls, depending on how you look at it, to make the argument to legalise cannabis like they've done in lots of US states, for example. Yeah, whereas for me, I'm more inclined to turn to use alcohol as, as the best reason not to legalise cannabis. Alcohol kills more people than all illegal drugs combined. Alcohol is is a drug, right? So it doesn't kill more people than heroin or crack cocaine 
because it's more harmful than heroin or crack cocaine. It kills more people because it's so widely used, it's so normalized. So I don't know why you'd shift more substances from the currently illegal category into the category that's actually associated with the highest level of harm, unless you want to see more people sick and, and unwell. So I, I'm convinced, and I think the data from the States and Canada bears this out, that with legalization, you get normalization, you get increased use, you get increased harm. People who are already using in the illegal context seem to start using an awful lot more once it's, once it's made legal. So from a health perspective, it just leads to busier hospitals, busier mental health services, more addiction. Uh, so it's very hard to see any health logic in, in steps to liberalise drug policy. And in terms of young people particularly, I mean, the, these um, classic examples of, you know, either demotivating influence of, depending on what kind of cannabis the young person smokes versus the more activating forms that, that might lead to psychotic uh, episodes. I mean, both seem to have a, a literature supporting them, don't they? Yeah, there, there's increasing and unrelenting evidence, I suppose, pointing to risks and harms for young people, particularly uh, in relation to any sort of cannabis use. The endocannabinoid system seems to be inextricably linked or have a, have a major role in the brain remodeling process that occurs really starting around puberty and ends in your mid-20s. So if you blitz the brain with exogenous cannabinoid agonists, you know, the, the evidence seems to indicate that that can influence that process of brain remodeling and architecture. And there's evidence now that, that they get thinner white matter amongst uh, adolescents who've been exposed to cannabis. And that could explain, I suppose, some of the mental health impacts we see. I'm certainly convinced that cannabis exposure during adolescence is a risk factor for development of, of illnesses such as schizophrenia. It seems to increase risk two or threefold. And you mentioned sort of impacts on motivation and, and people who use cannabis will say that themselves. In fact, when you do surveys of people who use cannabis and ask them why they've stopped using or why they reduced their use, the, the most common reason they say is because it, it takes away some of their motivation. So... Um, Reducing that risk of psychosis, there's evidence indicating loss of IQ uh, over over the decades. You know, uh, it's not it's not unreasonable that, that uh, as adults we're keen to steer people away from that particular pathway, given the the many downsides and the and the lack of upsides. Are you surprised that so many American states have gone the way they've gone and legalized it? I am somewhat surprised, but when you look at the money that's been pumped into the legalization agenda, it's you know, this isn't happening again by accident. Even in Ireland and across Europe, there's, there's this impression that's been carefully created by the legalisation lobby that this is some groundswell of, of uh, public opinion uh, at grassroots level. This is all funded. You know, it, it takes money, not a huge amount of money uh, even, to drag society down a particular path. You just need one or two little NGOs who just churn out a lot of pro-cannabis messaging uh, and that's enough to steer society down particular paths, particularly when the, there's lots of examples already. You know, they can point to, to Canada and point to the United States and say the world hasn't fallen apart with legalization. And it doesn't. It just gets a little bit worse. So it's a, it's a massive campaign uh, that's been going on for decades and it's going to continue. And it's obviously not going to end with cannabis legalization. The ambition is to see, I think, most drugs legalized. Uh, and that's going to create a new trillion dollar industry. 
and I think it's a bit naive to believe that um, people who would be interested in making money from that new trillion dollar industry to really believe that they're sitting on their hands waiting for society to make up our minds. Uh, I think they're very active and very influential across this conversation. And I, I don't mean to con- conflate them, but uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of the lot of drug use you're seeing in young people uh, must include cocaine. It seems to be ubiquitous at this stage. And cocaine has certainly increased and has certainly been increasingly normalised. I think any setting where you get adults getting drunk, you have cocaine now. Uh, and that seems to be in a way that that just wasn't the case. You know, pe- people in Ireland are getting drunk for decades, if not centuries. Uh, and certainly even going back to my own time in college, I don't remember encountering cocaine. But nowadays it does seem hugely normal for young people you know, to just comment on the amount of cocaine use that they're seeing amongst their peers now and just in the last probably four or five years in a way that, that simply wasn't the case uh, 20, 30 years ago. So that's certainly worrying. And it is accounting for a growing number of referrals into addiction treatment services. Cocaine as a problem, I, I don't see huge numbers in, in the adolescent age range. It seems to to, to rear its head more so in mid to late 20s uh, than it does in, in the teens. In, in the teens, it's still very much cannabis uh, is the dominant drug driving you know, demand for addiction treatment. But let's move on to uh, talk, talk about yourself again. How do you maintain your work-life balance? I suppose I've got some extracurricular activities, you know, home and family is, is obviously good. That's my wife, my kids, you know, my parents, my siblings. I've got a good group of friends who I do my best to, to catch up with, although it does amaze me how you can live in a city and live two or three kilometers from someone, but you still only see them every uh, every two months. But it's about, I suppose, I do make an effort to, to try and maintain contact with that, that, that sort of friendship group. I cycle. I think that's good for, for the head and also, I suppose, good for the body. You cycle with a group? Or? There's a small group of us would cycle. We got the Dublin, the Dublin mountains and into Wicklow on our doorstep. So 30 minutes, 40 minutes after leaving home, you're, you could be in the middle of nowhere. You could be anywhere in the world uh, when you're up uh, cycling along the military road or whatever. So you know, the stuff like that is good. Then I suppose, I, you know, weekends away, holidays. I like busy holidays where you're the stuff to do. Um, if I had one week away, uh, sort of lying behind it, beside a pool, I don't think I'd get out of my head. I'd, I'd still be thinking about work or developing the services or policy issues and stuff like that. Whereas uh, if you've got a busy holiday, snowboarding is brilliant in, in sort of February. Where, where do you go? Usually, always Austria. Yeah, different resorts around Austria. And been doing that with the same group really for the last 30 years. But it's definitely the sort of holiday where the moment you arrive in the plane lands, your, your head's in that space and, and it's out of the workspace completely for the whole week. And that's great. I was in Greece there for a two week holiday as well. And I was doing activities I hadn't really done before, a bit of sailing. So it's, it's nice to find things that allow you to switch off completely, particularly if you do tend to live a bit in your own head, as I certainly do. When you're, when you're not cycling or, or away, um what are the things that you're interested in in terms of, you know, books, films, theatre, that kind of thing? Music actually is definitely something that I love. Listening to music on an iPod or whatever, or, or maybe going to to live bands and so on. Like, again, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the, there was a festival called the Forever Young Festival. So it's all the bands that 
we both might remember from the 80s and 90s. So, I mean, at that over the last few years is Jimmy Somerville, Midge-Your, Bananarama, even this year. Uh, not that I would have been a big Bananarama fan, but they were great fun. You know, stuff like that as an event, because it's not just about the music at a festival like that. It's it's about the crowd. And so, is that an, was that an overnight thing? or did you? Yeah, no, I was uh, sleeping in a tent for, for three days and it was... Dealing with the muck and rain, actually, this year, last year, the weather was fabulous, whereas this year, uh, it was definitely, it tested the enthusiasm for camping. But once you resigned yourself to being a little bit wet, it was great. Yeah, I loved it. Sounds pretty good, actually. Can I ask you about your, your bucket list? Do you have one? In terms of a bucket list, yeah, I don't really have a, a big bucket list, you know. I, I'm not inclined to postpone pleasure if that makes sense. I do things I find fun now. I think I've visited most locations uh, I want to go to. I've done most things I want to do. But I suppose, you know, it's more about the, the, the promise I try to make to myself as I look to my future is to try and keep life engaging and interesting. And I have to acknowledge that staring down the barrel of retirement in maybe eight, nine years time, you know, I know I'm going to have to give a bit more thought to how I'm going to sort of fill fill my time. It's funny, the best piece of advice a friend of mine says he got off his dad was, you know, find your hobbies before you retire. Don't wait to retire to, to, to find a hobby. But I haven't quite followed through on that advice yet. I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue the cycling into my 70s. You know, I need to find something a little bit more sedentary, perhaps. You've got some time to figure it out. Do you, do you think in terms of a legacy? I suppose I do a little bit, and maybe it sounds arrogant in some ways, but you're, you, know, you spend a long time working in an area and going back to the fact that, that you know, when, when I began working in the Adolescent Addiction Service, it was just a heroin treatment service. So I suppose I would hope that the legacy will be leaving behind a, a reasonably well-developed adolescent addiction service where adolescents who encounter substance use problems, whether it's alcohol or drugs now and into the future, they and their parents won't be scrambling around the place, scratching their heads, figuring out, trying to figure out where should we go that there will hopefully be a network of services, not just locally here in Dublin, but I've been trying to support the development of services nationally. That is something that by the time I retire in eight or nine years' time, I would hope will be will be well established. And I'd imagine, aside from the, the kind of medical and, and uh, compassionate reasons to do this, it probably pays for itself many times down the line if you build up the service, right? Yeah, addiction can really derail lives uh, and some people never get their life back on track others do but the faster you do it the, the more likely you are to have have a better outcome so it makes sense for the individual it makes sense for the family and it makes sense for society to in, invest resources in, in doing this well and better because yeah it, it will pay for itself financially even just one even the a ruthless economist who had no empathy, could probably be persuaded by the maths of, of investing in, in good addiction treatment. And for last question, going back in time, if you could advise your 24-year-old self, what would you advise differently? Or would you just say, go with, go with the way you did it? Maybe the, the key thing was, you know, I was a little bit lost, I suppose, maybe in medical school and left at the age of 24. And I had no real sense at all where I was going to be when I was 40 within this career of medicine or if I was going to stay in it. But it would probably be the advice to to, to stick with it, that, that your path will sort of reveal itself uh, within medicine. There's phenomenal diversity within within this career and so many different paths you can go down. 
uh, to pursue your interests and your path will sort of reveal itself and, and to trust that because I was I, I didn't I didn't know that back when I was 24 and maybe you can't <laughs> maybe that's asking for a wise head on young shoulders uh, that's not realistic perhaps well, that sounds like good advice and uh, as we finish up I'd really like to thank you for an interesting conversation and thanks for doing this I'm sure the alumni will find it very interesting and uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in your r- remaining career uh, it's obviously a a very important area for our society and uh, I look forward to your work in the future. Yeah, thanks Pat. Delighted to have had this chat. Thanks Bobby.